This is a Federal News Network podcast. Like Iron Chef contestants, researchers at NASA are pushing ahead on a program to develop food systems for astronauts who will be in space for months, years even. Now, last year we reported on a first round of 18 grants made by the Deep Space Food Challenge program. For what's going on with round two, the program manager for NASA's Centennial Challenges, Monty Roman. Monty, good to have you back. Good morning to you. So in the first round, there were 18, I guess, academics and industrial operations that had ways, at least ideas, for sustaining astronauts in the very long term, thinking totally outside of the box with respect to how astronauts have traditionally been fed. And what happens now? So we opened the phase two of this competition when we're asking not only those 18 teams that won a prize purse for their ideas, but anybody to come and give us new ideas. These ideas now have to be demonstrated towards the end of the competition. So not only are you going to bring us the ideas, but now you have to demo how you will get those ideas to reality. And so 18 of the grantees then made it to round two, and then it sounds like this will be either do or die for them. Well, yes, that is correct. But we're also inviting for a short amount of time until February 28th. We open the registration to anybody else that might have not heard of the competition before. So most definitely we are welcoming our 18 teams that won. We are welcoming the other teams that participated in there. But we're also welcoming until February 28th, the registration of brand new teams that did not participate in phase one. And they will just do this on their own nickel then? That is correct. They have to do the development on their own nickel to begin with, yes. And do you have people signing up and deciding to throw their hat in the ring while we're throwing cliches around here that want to also participate? That's correct. We do have a good amount of people already registering. And that is why we're closing the registration at the end of February. So we have time to see who we have get the right amount of judges and amount of webinars to educate our competitors throughout the process that it's going to take to get to the final of this competition. And I think as we spoke earlier, to sustain people for months in space and not just a few days or even a couple of weeks, it's not a matter of how many cans of tuna fish or how many boxes of cornflakes you can fit into the crevices, but whole new ways of thinking about creating food and so on. What are some of the leading domains of ideas, let's say, that are coming up here? So it's going to be unfair to say the leading domain because the truth is what we're looking is for a variety of food options. So it depends what you feel like eating one day, you know, what will be the best for you and what you feel like, you know, the next day we don't tend to like the same things or eat the same things every day. So I think they bring a variety and they bring many things in addition to the variety of their menu. They bring the part of getting the astronauts to be in charge of growing or creating, you know, bioprinting perhaps, you know, using cellular culturing to grow something, you know, some kind of a part of a fruit or perhaps baking a piece of bread or growing some mushrooms that they can eat. That presumes there is a mushroom that's good to eat. Uh, you know, well, <laughs> I love mushrooms, so <laughs> there's lots of really good ones out there to be sure. part of a diet that could be amazing for people. So, yeah, there's there's so many things. So the truth is 
we are not asking for what is the best food. We're asking for the variety. We are increasing the variety for the crew that will be nutritious, that will have something for them to be part of the growth of it or the creation of it. And we'll supplement what you just talked about, the cornflakes and, and, you know, the things like that that you will have. There. Well, salt and pepper is easy to store for a few months or so. We're speaking with Monsi Roman. She's program manager for the Centennial Challenges program at NASA. But it seems like the underlying idea for all of these sub-ideas is sustainability and a process that would create the food as opposed to trying to just freeze-dry it all into the size of a poker chip and stuffing it onto the spacecraft. That is correct. It's also about the process of when you're cooking, you can smell it too. And so it's just the whole experience also. So yes, absolutely. It's about varieties, about nutrition. It's about sustainability. And that can have a lot of applications here on Earth. So it's not thinking just, you know, we're going to have, you know, a bag of whatever, but where did the bag come from? Where is the bag going to go after I finish eating it? And so on and so forth. And in this round two, the original round one participants plus the new ones that sign up between now and the end of the month, what do you expect them to show you then at the end of the whole round of competition, which I guess is sometime after February 28th? All these ideas that are, you know, some of them that sounds completely crazy are feasible or have at least a degree of feasibility that we can explore. And also something that is important in this round is the safety of this food. So now you're going to be growing or creating food over and over and over again, right? Instead of disposing of the bag after you eat it and or so on. Now we have to start thinking, okay, so if we grow a plant and then we take the product and then we grow it again, will the new product be safe? If we bioprint something, how safe it is for the crew while they're bioprinting or once you bioprint it, can you eat it immediately and all those kind of things. Microorganisms are something else. <laughs> we have dealt with them, you know, obviously now more than ever. And so all those things will become an important part of it. Will chimpanzees or goats become the so-called taste testers for these things, just so you know they don't keel over the second they swallow them? I don't think so. That is an idea that I have never heard before. But um, no, it would be us at some point. But for that, NASA has a process that has to go through in order for humans to be able to taste it. So no, we're not planning to kill anybody. All right. <laughs> that would be a bad headline. NASA engineer keels over after tasting space food. But uh, Yeah, that's not, that's not what we're trying to do at all. Um, no, no, not at all. We are, uh, safety for us is one of the most important thing, uh, you know, kidding, you know, aside. Um, safety is super important for our crew and, and for the success of the missions. NASA has very strict protocols to make sure that those things do not happen. Yes, because over time, things can transmute and change and so forth or can develop and some strange thing that came in that you were unaware of at the launch could then later manifest itself. So you really have a life cycle approach as well as just an efficacy approach. That is a very well put way of thinking about this. Exactly right. You know, we're not only looking at the first crop or the first batch of whatever is produced, but now it's the sustainability part of it where it's going to have, you know, iterations, you know, and over and over again. And, and like you said, you know, there's some things that you might not be able to predict by only growing or producing for the first time, but doing it in some kind of cyclic event, then you might find out about it. And since this is your second interview with us, we should probably point out that you will not personally be around necessarily for the taste testing because you're going on to a new job at NASA. 
I am, yes, I am moving to a new job. This job has been amazing for the past six years and I'm looking forward to my new job where I'll be working with the commercial sector as part of a NASA still, but at the commercial sector, looking at the possibilities of having experiments in suborbital flights with our civil servants leading those experiments. So it's super interesting and game-changing and excited to be part of that. Well, we'll have you back when you've been there a little while and you can tell us what's going on there. Absolutely. Happy to. (laughs) Monsi Roman, at least for the moment, is program manager for the Centennial Challenges program at NASA. Thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. Anytime. We'll post this interview and a link to more information about the challenge at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, As part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader, that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also 
reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do 
Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on, and you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.